Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires Well, I want to start today with some embarrassing moments I found on Twitter. Uh, if you watch The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, I got this idea from his hashtags segment. Uh, so this would be uh, hashtag embarrassing. Uh, this is what AJ Mendez Brooks writes. Just bumped into a mannequin and said, sorry, and then said, oh, I thought you were a person. Then I realized I was still talking to a mannequin. <laughs> uh, John McKay writes, on a trip, saw some baby horses, could not think of the word foal, finally shouted horse kittens and pointed, wife understood. <laughs> How many of you wives have had that experience where like, you interpreted some nonsensical phrase of your husband? Uh, Noah Masterson writes, after flunking a job interview, got, got up, shook everyone's hand, and walked into the coat closet. <laughs> and I wonder how long he stayed there. Amanda writes, got into the passenger seat of the wrong car outside of Starbucks. The driver waited until I finished my phone call to tell me. <laughs> that should be hashtag scary, right? Uh, Kelly B writes, a friend went to a place uh, to a place to my, a friend went to place her order at the drive-thru. She then heard, can you drive up to the speaker? You're talking to the trash can. <laughs> Eliza Doodle writes, first proper job interview, got asked, how's your grammar? With a confused face, I answered, she's fine. Still got the job. <laughs> oh, Grandma Mildred, you know, she's fine. Last one, Kristen writes, I once hugged a valet guy because I thought he was going in for one, but was actually reaching for my door handle. <laughs> my guess is it wouldn't take much work for most of us in the room to come up with an embarrassing moment in your life. Uh, one of mine, I was in the restroom washing my hands, and a woman walked in. Uh, and she saw me, and she immediately turned around and walked out. And that's when I turned around and realized there were no urinals in the restroom. And, and there were also no windows, uh, because that's what I wanted to do, is crawl out the window. Uh, we all have embarrassing moments. Uh, but if you go a few layers deeper than embarrassment, which eventually will probably wear off, you'll find that human beings have the capacity for a painful sensation, uh, one that tends to be more permanent, or at least a lot longer lasting than uh, embarrassment and can do a lot more damage. We're in this series, I'm done with that, and today we're focusing on shame. Uh, I'm done dealing with shame. It was a few years ago, I was listening to Brene Brown in a TED Talk describe the destructive power of shame. And that's when I decided one day I want to teach a message that will bring healing and hope to people at Blue Oaks who are dealing with shame. Uh, because unlike embarrassment, shame can be lethal. I mean, it could strike to the core of who we are. Uh, people never tell funny stories about their shame. I mean, they do about embarrassment, but never about shame. It can destroy your confidence. It can wither your spirit. It can paralyze your relationships. Uh, experts in the field say those who struggle with shame sometimes have problems with rage um, or, can lead, or can lead to addictions or eating disorders, depression, or even suicide. It's all around us. There's a shame that a little kid feels when he's consistently picked last for teams. Uh, no one wants him on their side. 
There's the shame of being home by yourself weekend after weekend when it feels like everyone else is out having fun or on dates and you wonder, why doesn't anyone want to be with me? There's a shame that you feel when you meet an old classmate from school and it seems like they've done so much with their lives and you wonder what you've done with yours. There's a shame that a high school student feels when he eats lunch by himself day after day because no one else wants to eat with him and so eventually he learns just to hang out in the library or somewhere else so that he can hide his shame. There's the shame from a long pattern of deceit or mismanaged anger or divorce or bankruptcy or leading a double life. Shame is this feeling of heaviness that sits on a person when they feel they don't measure up to who they were meant to be and maybe never will. Shame is not just a failing here or there or a minor flaw here or there. A woman who wrestles with shame put it like this, I feel my deformity is showing. It's like I'm a deformed person. Not just that I've done something wrong and I feel guilty, but that there's something wrong with me. Brene Brown said the difference between shame and guilt is, uh, guilt is I did something bad, shame is I am bad. Well, what I wanna do in our time today is look at two questions. Uh, Where does shame come from? So how is it that people go through life crippled by it sometimes? Where does it come from? And how do we gain the power to be done with it? And I want to start with an analogy that's been used by many people who write about shame. Uh, We were at the fair a while ago in uh, one of those fun houses where they have uh, the funny mirrors. And they look like ordinary normal mirrors until you stand in front of one and kind of stare at your reflection for a while. And then everything looks strange. And you stand in front of one and your knees look like they're six feet long. Uh, If you stick your finger down into that zone, your finger will go from your hips all the way down to your feet like you have an alien finger. Uh, Stand in front of another mirror and it looks like you're three feet high and four feet wide. You look like Jabba the Hutt. Uh, Now imagine for a moment that your parents had a bizarre sense of humor and they decided to get rid of all the regular normal mirrors in the house and replace them with the mirrors in this exhibit. And they don't do that just with one mirror but with every mirror and not just for a day or a week, but for your entire life. So month after month, year after year, every time you see yourself, the image is three feet high and four feet wide. You think you're Jabba the Hutt. Your picture, your identity, your understanding of who you are would be totally distorted from reality. And what's more, you would never know that it's distorted. You wouldn't have a clue. You would think that that distorted picture is an accurate representation of who you are. And then what's more, uh, this would lead to a serious, uh, the serious consequences uh, because you would make life-forming decisions about your future, about your work and relationships and so on based on uh, dramatically distorted misinformation. I mean, Kevin Durant would never have been a basketball player. He would never have picked up a basketball, never have become a basketball player in his life if he truly believed that he was three feet high and four feet wide. And here's the point. You and I are at the mercy of the mirrors of our life to get an idea of who we are. And this is true not just physically with mirrors, it's true about our identity as persons, as emotional and spiritual beings. We have mirrors in our life that reflect to us who we are and what we're worth. One writer put it like this, the people in a young child's life, especially a child's parents, serve as kind of a mirror for the child, her sense of of herself and her feelings before she has the capacity to achieve this on her own. So from the moment you first develop self-awareness, 
you begin to pick up signals that could answer the question, who am I? What kind of person am I? And from that point on, you're constantly on the lookout for cues, you know, tone of voice, uh, facial gesture, gestures of touch that would give you some understanding of who you are and what you're worth. The people you grew up with mirrored to you, whether uh, poorly or well, whether unconsciously or consciously, who you are. When you walked into a room, if their faces lit up and their eyes gleamed and that became a part of your image of yourself. You read your identity in their eyes. And when you walked into a room, if their faces didn't light up, if their faces turned away, if their eyes did not uh, glaze with joy, uh, then that also became a part of your image. You read who you were in the eyes of the people in your life. And that's how you make your life decisions. And for some of you, you read from the eyes of the people in your life that you're not pretty enough, or you're not smart enough, or you're not good enough, or you're not special enough to be truly loved. We all have distorted mirrors in our life. And we all have distorted mirrors in other people's lives. And one of the reasons for this is that shame is such a powerful technique for controlling other people's behavior. Shame is infinitely more powerful than logic or persuasion or encouragement. Our family was at Disneyland a couple years ago, and it was our son Ezra's first time at Disneyland, and we were having a wonderful time, um, but it was only a matter of time before we came to one of those rides where everyone in the family wanted to go on the ride except one member of our family who was afraid. And so we went through a series of attempts to try to encourage or persuade this one person. And after trying to use, use rational persuasion, like, you know, no one has ever died on this ride as far as we know, and then encouragement, like, you know, come on, go on this ride. You'll feel proud of yourself if you go on this ride. And then alternative means, like, we'll give you a dollar if you go on this ride. Um, anyone want to guess what turned out to be the most powerful, persuasive technique? Yeah, it was shame. Look at this ride. I mean, people younger than you are going on this ride. Tiny little kids are going on this ride. I mean, they can hardly even stand on their own, but they're not afraid. They're not begging to get out of this ride. They're not acting like this ride is bungee jumping with dental floss. I mean, if they can go on it, why can't you go on it? And of course, the real message was, if you can't handle this, something's wrong with you. You're lacking in the courage department. And so you can choose that if you want to, but we'll, we'll withdraw a little bit from you emotionally. We won't be pleased with you here today. We'll be a little ashamed of you. We'll be a little ashamed that you're a part of our family. Now, no one, of course, said it in exactly those words, but in between the lines, the meaning was very clear. And so finally, the humiliation got strong enough that I said, all right, kids, fine, I'll go on the darn teacup ride, just get off my back. <laughs> this kind of shame that's used to control and to manipulate other people is highly destructive. And some of you have been deeply wounded by it. Some of you grew up in families where you heard it every day. Some of you maybe attended churches somewhere along the line where shame was the primary technique to motivate people's behavior or to control them. The primary need for some of you here today is to hide because shame always causes you to want to hide. You know, the writers of Scripture say God did not make human beings to go through life dealing with shame. In Genesis, the writer of Scripture says about Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no hiding between them. 
No secrets, no hiddenness. They did not experience shame. And then came sin. And then came the fall. And the writers say, the writer of Genesis says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and the woman, uh, the wife, uh, heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to them, where are you? And they, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And we've been hiding ever since, hiding from God and hiding from each other. And for some of you in this room, or for some of you who are watching online, the primary way you're going to receive the power to be done with dealing with shame is to stop hiding whatever it is that has created the shame in you. You need to find another person who will be loving toward you and bring it out into the open. You need to find some new mirrors, some more accurate mirrors. Maybe you need to find a good Christian counselor. Maybe you need to uh, find a support of a loving community or a, a a group of friends who will actually give you the gift of acceptance. Maybe you need to join a small group that will do that for you. You know, one of the primary commitments we have here at Blue Oaks is to help people get into small groups where they can find people who will care for them and love them, prize them. Some of you have been hiding for a long time, and today, if you want to be done with dealing with shame, you need to stop hiding and you need to come out into the open. Now, it would be wonderful if my job today, my only job today, was to say that this is the whole story about shame. That shame simply happens to us as a result of outside forces mistreating us. And if I could just get the accurate mirrors in my life, then the shame would go away. Many people in the field of psychology who write about shame write as if that's the whole story. But the writers of scripture say there's more to it than that. Sometimes shame is a result of looking at a flawed mirror. But sometimes I experience shame when I'm actually looking at an accurate mirror. When I look in a mirror that reflects me as I really am. The writers of scriptures say that one of the reasons I feel I'm a flawed person is I am a flawed person. I have greed inside of me. I have selfishness inside of me. I have envy and jealous, jealousy inside of me. I sometimes hurt people I love. And those kinds of things, I, I just can't snap my finger and make them go away. Now, this is a very important thing about shame. And again, you tend not to read this in the stuff that's written about it in our day. Sometimes shame has important things to say to us, and we need to listen. The capacity to experience shame is one of the most important parts of being a person, being a human being made in the image of God. It's one of the things that separates us from the animals. It's a noble thing to actually experience shame. If someone is utterly incapable of experiencing shame, if someone cannot experience shame anymore, then something has actually gone wrong with that person. There's an old expression that people used uh, if they wanted to insult a woman. Um, It's not used very much anymore, but if you wanted to insult a woman, they would sometimes use the word hussy. And it's part of a two-word phrase, uh, not just that she's a hussy, but sometimes people would say, she's a shameless hussy. And I'm not even sure what a hussy is, but apparently if you've been hussing, you ought to feel bad about it. Uh, It's not a good thing to do. Uh, If someone has fallen so low that they can do something that's bad and not even blush over it, then someone will ask the question, have you no shame? That is, if you can do bad things and not experience remorse or shame over them, 
then you've lost something essential to your humanity. It's just important that we listen to this and that we think about it in relation to shame. Hermann Goering, who had been the designer of some of the worst evil in Nazi Germany, was on trial in Nuremberg, and they had been reading a list of the atrocities that he had been involved in, uh, just mind-blowing things. And they were reading the list, and he leaned over to Albert Speer, who was also on trial at Nuremberg, and said, never mind, someday they'll build monuments to us. This is a person partly responsible for the destruction of millions and millions of human beings in this evil empire, and as, he's being revealed, as this is being revealed to the whole world, his response was, one day they'll build memorials to me. You see, if he could experience a little bit of shame, it would have said there was a spark of humanity left in him. If he would have at least have felt some pain over what he had done, what his life had become, maybe he could have been led to forgiveness. One of the most important things in gaining power to be done dealing with shame is learning to discern between this healthy kind of shame that would have saved Hermann Goering. Uh, or at least told him that he was way off track, to, uh, that, that his life had become what it was. Learning to discern between that and the junk that tends to get in the way that comes from distorted mirrors. And I want to tell you a story about both kinds of shame. It's a, it's a true story about a real person. I'm going to call her Angela. Uh, it's not her real name, but it's a true story. And many of you have experienced similar kinds of stories, either one way or another. Angela was in my class in sixth grade. Uh, she had frizzy hair, real pale complexion, big freckles, buck teeth, and she was not considered very attractive. Uh, she was not popular socially. She said strange things sometimes. And in the caste system of our sixth grade class, uh, young people kind of getting ready to enter into adolescence, she was on the lowest rung. She was untouchable. A lot, of, a lot of you, when you think back to when you were that age, can remember someone like that in maybe one of your classes. And this is what life was like for her. No one voluntarily ever sat by her. Uh, no one ever befriended her. Her words carried no weight with the rest of her class. Uh, no one responded to her suggestions, and she learned to just quit making them. If a joke was going to be made at someone's expense, generally it would be made at her expense. And no one ever stuck up for her. No one ever said to the rest of the class, would you cut it out? Would you stop treating her like this? Why don't you treat her like a human being? No one ever said that. Now, this was not an overt decision. I mean, there was no name for the position that she held in our class. Like, no one voted to make her class leper. It was just understood that what she did and what she wore and what she said was just going to be unacceptable. Now, it was about sixth grade where I was growing up that girls stopped having cooties, and boys and girls sometimes would go out. Um, no one knew where you were supposed to go when you were going out or if you were actually supposed to go somewhere, but we would use the term, we were going out. And to go out with Angela would have been unthinkable. In fact, if you wanted to insult a boy in the class, all you'd have to say is that he kissed Angela or has, he's going out with Angela. She lived every day between the despair of not being noticed and the knowledge that if she did get any attention at all, it would be to shame her. And now... Looking back 35 years later, I wonder, why did we do that? Like, where did that kind of cruelty come from? Why didn't I ever sit next to her? Why didn't I ever stick up for her? Why didn't I ever say to the other people, would you leave her alone? 
because I knew better. I knew better, but I didn't do anything. You know, shame is a funny thing. And here's part of what's strange about it. That group would have shamed anyone who came to her defense. That group of sixth graders would have shamed anyone who befriended her. It was the threat of being shamed, rejected by the group, that kept people away from Angela. It was shame that kept people from doing what was right. But now that I look back on what we did and what all groups of kids do, what all human beings do, and the fear that she brought to school with her every morning and the pain that she took home with her every night and how hard she must have worked to keep her parents from ever finding out because she wanted them to be proud of her. She wanted them, like all kids want their parents, to think that she was happy and smart and successful and popular at school. I mean, she kept that pain hidden in secret. She kept it in the closet. And I think about that, and I think about what it would be like if one of my kids going through school would have to experience what she experienced. And you know what? I look back on that, and I feel ashamed. I just feel ashamed because I knew better. And in the years between then and now, I have known some people, and I have loved some people who have been hurt. And I know what it does to people. And so there's different kinds of shame in this story. There's the kind that Angela carried every day of her life, and it was a false shame. It was an evil shame. It told her that she was unlovely, that she was unlovable, and that she was unattractive and unwanted. And it wasn't true. She was a child of God. But there's this other kind of shame. There's the shame that I feel now knowing uh, that there was this gap between who I was and who I was meant to be, who I wish I would have been. The shame that tells me God made me to be a compassionate person and a courageous person. He didn't make me to be a cowardly person or a cruel person. This is what one writer calls redemptive shame. Now, this is a very odd phrase and one that you're not likely to read about in articles that get written on, written on shame in our day, but it's true. It's about the kind of painful, hopeful signal that says you've fallen short of God's plan for you, and that's not okay. And that needs to be remedied. Now, how does that shame get healed? Where do we get the power to be done with the shame that comes from the fact that I am truly a flawed person? Well, some people think, you know, if only I could do good enough. If only I could get my behavior to kind of live up to God's standard. If only I could live up to the standard of my parents or my friends or my spouse or even God. And so life becomes this endless attempt to do more and to work harder and to be better and many people have this idea that that's what Christianity is all about, that it's this religious attempt to live up to the standard of God. But it's never enough. You know, God is a holy God. God is a God of perfection. I mean, we can never reach that standard. And then there are some people who think, if I just tell myself that I'm acceptable, if I just chant enough slogans of self-affirmation and think enough positive thoughts, then I can be done with dealing with shame. But see, the problem is not just getting me to think good thoughts about myself. The problem is that there is this gap, that I'm not the person I was meant to be. You know, one of the writers on shame who has written widely with influence about shame in our day talks about shame being kind of like a severing of a bridge. That between the important people in your life, between a child and parents, there's this bridge of trust. 
And the bridge is filled as parents communicate love and value and acceptance of that child. But it's when it feels like that bridge is broken that when shame comes in. And you can see it. People hang their heads. They look away with their eyes. They blush. And the writers of Scripture say that not only do we have this problem with each other, this severed bridge, but that we've been separated from God. That our sin and shame has separated us from God and that we hide from God. And that the one answer, the one hope for human beings to receive the power to be able to be done with dealing with shame is something called grace. That God chooses to wipe away the cause of our shame and to give us full acceptance. And it works something like this. Uh, Some time ago, I was driving in my car and I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw something which brought some fear and some panic and some shame to me. Anyone want to guess what it was? It was those red and blue flashing lights in my mirror. Uh, A police car pulled up behind me and pulled me over to the side of the road and I felt bad about that. Uh, I felt bad because everyone driving was watching what was happening and I felt a little bit ashamed about that. And I was also late for a meeting. I was supposed to be at a church meeting and I was late for that and so I was feeling really guilty about that and I was in a hurry. And he just sat in his police car for like the longest time. And I thought, well, I'm going to expedite this process a little bit. So I got out of my car and I started walking back to his car so that he could kind of move things along. And they don't like it when you do that at all. I mean, he came on the intercom, get back in your car or else. And so I didn't have to think about that very long. So I went back to my car and I waited a little while longer. And then finally he came over to my car and I rolled down my window and he just stood there for the longest time. And so finally, just to kind of break the silence and get the process moving, and because I was feeling so bad, I said, all right, officer, uh, I don't want to waste your time. I know I'm guilty. I feel bad about this. I'm guilty. I don't want to argue with you. So whatever it is that you have to do, just go ahead and do it. I'm guilty, and I know it. I'm not going to try to convince you. Otherwise, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. And so he just stood there and looked at me for a few moments, and then he said, well, that's very interesting. You just keep telling me how guilty you are, and I haven't even told you why I pulled you over yet. I haven't even said anything yet, and all you can say is, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. I wonder, why is that? Why are you guilty? And so I said, well, officer, I'm a pastor, and I'm on my way to a church meeting, and I'm late for it, and I'm feeling bad about that. And, you know, I'm a pastor, and so when I say I'm guilty, I'm speaking theologically, you know, like, I'm guilty, you're guilty, we're all guilty, really, when it comes down to it, right? (laughs) And so I explained my situation, and then he said to me, you know, have you got anything to substantiate this pastor bit? And I wanted so badly to say, no, do you have anything to substantiate this police officer bit? <laughs> but I thought that wouldn't be a good idea. And so I rummaged through the car for something to substantiate the fact that I worked as a pastor, and all I could find was an invitation to our church services. So I gave him an invitation to one of our church services, and it was an invitation to our money and sex series. And he did, this, he did this amazing thing. He said, well, I'll tell you what. And the reason he actually pulled me over was because I had a taillight that wasn't working. I mean, a taillight. Uh, I'd been confessing to all this stuff, and it was just a taillight that wasn't working. He said, probably, I, you know, I wasn't monitoring it, but probably you were going a little too fast. But he said, I'm just going to let you go free. He said, I pulled, I, I've probably pulled over, you know, 1,000 people. I've never had an encounter like this with anyone and this will be a good story to tell around the station. So he said, I'm just going to let you go free. You're not guilty in my book. You're free. And God says that 
one hope for being done with dealing with the shame that cripples the human race is the grace of God. That you don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. It's just a free gift. It's why Jesus came to teach and live. It's why he went to the cross. It's why he died and was raised again to make available to all of us the grace of God. The writer of Hebrews said this, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, Jesus went to the cross so that you and I could receive the free gift of the acceptance of God. The cross was the ultimate expression of what it is to be shamed on this earth. When Jesus went to the cross, people mocked him, they ridiculed him, they spit on him, they beat him, they killed him. And in his death, the writer of Scripture says that he was bearing the burden of all of your shame and all of your guilt, and mine too. He was paying the moral indebtedness that you and I could not pay so that we could be free of the burden of shame. But you have to receive it. You have to decide. You actually have to make a choice. You have to say to God, God, I confess not just that other people have hurt me, though they have, but also that I'm not the person I was meant to be. I'm tempted to hide. And the invitation by the writers of Scripture is to stop hiding and to just bring it out into the open with God and accept his grace. And then this wonderful thing will happen to you. You will have a new mirror you'll have a chance to look at yourself in a new mirror. The writer of Psalm 17 has this wonderful prayer that he prays to God. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. This phrase, keep me as the apple of your eye, is in Hebrew, it's a, that's the original language that the, the Old Testament was written. It, there's a little idiom that refers to the little person in your eye. And it comes from the fact that if you get very close to a person and you look directly into their eyes, if you're very close to them, you'll actually get a reflection of your own face. Like physically, if you get very close to someone and you look into their eye, you'll see a reflection of yourself. Like their eye literally serves as kind of a mirror to you. You see yourself in their eye. You can try it right now if you want to. I mean, if you're here with someone who you really know well, look really close into their eye and you'll see yourself. If you're sitting next to an attractive stranger and you've never met before and you want to risk possibly being shamed, you know, look, look really close into their eye. Something exciting might happen today. The human eye actually serves as kind of a mirror. It's a wonderful truth about how the body is constructed by God. The human eye serves as kind of a mirror physically. So when you gaze deeply into the eyes of another person, you actually see yourself. And here's what the writer is getting at. You're invited into an intimate relationship with God. You and I are. And there may be all kinds of reasons why in your mind you think you cannot be. There may be shame that you've carried around that has been hidden, locked up inside your whole life long, but it's not hidden from God. And that's good news. That's the good news. Because only when someone fully knows you can they fully love you. And God fully loves you. That's God's grace made available through Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the writer of Scripture says to get as close to God as you possibly can. And what happens is God looks at you in grace and love and acceptance. You get close enough and you'll see yourself the way that God sees you. You'll see yourself in the eyes of God. 
You'll come to see and to know and to understand, and you will actually believe. You will actually find yourself believing that you are the apple of God's eye. You are the apple of his eye with all your flaws and all your failures, with all the ways that you fall short. You are loved and prized and cherished and treasured in the eyes of God. The only place to find the power to be done with dealing with shame is the grace of God. And the place to find that grace is in the eyes of the God of the cross. And that's the mirror that brings the healing. All right, let me pray as the band comes to lead us in a closing song. Now, God, for people who have been looking in the wrong mirror, who have been crippled by shame and have been hiding, we just ask for your grace. And God, for people who have been living in hiddenness and shame, avoiding you, maybe running from you, not facing up to the gap between who they are and who they were meant to be, God, we ask for your grace. God, would you help us to come to Jesus the one who teaches us, the one who lived and died for us, who was raised again so that we could know the grace and forgiveness that actually heals us of our shame. God, would you help us? Would you give us your grace? We ask this in Jesus' name. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.